the normal. So uh, I had served, graduated from college, served a couple years in InterVarsity staff on uh, different college campuses and and went back to the home church, and the church was debating and wrestling with an important issue. Um, They were wrestling with whether they should change how they elect leadership, elders, and deacons. They had only elected men as elders, and and the lead pastor was advocating for a change. And so we had a congregational meeting, and it was actually quite refreshing. We, we were learning, and we were gathered together to, to talk about Scripture. And essentially, the lead pastor was bringing up a Galatians uh, passage, Galatians 3, we'll talk about that passage, where there's, uh, in Christ, there's neither slave nor free, uh, Jew or Gentile, male or female. He was also uh, directing us to a chapter in Romans, where we'll talk about that as well. And he was talking about the Greek name of Junia, Junius. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and he was saying that the, the plainest reading is that she was one of the apostles. And if you look at all the Greek names in Junia, it's always a woman. It's never a man. And he explained the Greek, and then I remember him saying to the congregation, is this making sense? And my dad raised his hand, he says, it's all Greek to me. I just miss my dad regularly. Could you give me that my coffee, please? That would be great. So um, we're wrestling with that, but also, thanks, sweet. Um, we were given an uh, opportunity to speak, and so a number of people stood up, And uh, I remember uh, a woman leader uh, for our youth group, and she shared, she says, I think this is Eve uh, deceiving Adam all over again to take a bite of the apple. And then other really good, thoughtful leaders directed to 1 Timothy 2 said, I think scripture is pretty clear that men are to not have any authority, uh, women are not to have any authority over men. And I got up and I said, I'm unsure of what to think. I, there seems to re- be really solid on both sides of the issue. I, I, I was about 50-50 at that moment wrestling with the texts. And I I said, I'm unsure of where we go. You see, this was a different issue that sometimes on particular issues that are facing the church, you have one group of folks that are starting to pull away from the authority of Scripture. Or they're starting to say, you know what, I use a different hermeneutics, or you can make Scripture say whatever you want, or you can say, "Um, oh, I, I like... 
Uh, you know, we use Scripture as a guide, but it's not our final rule of life and faith. That's happening today. In fact, that's related to why we're taking a vote to leave the denomination later this afternoon. But this was not that circumstance. This was good, faithful people committed to Scripture, committed to Scripture being the final rule of life and faith, and really having a difference of opinion of what Scripture teaches. How do we deal with those moments? How do we thoughtfully wrestle through those really difficult passages of Scripture? Now, this Sunday morning is going to be a little bit odd. If you're a visitor, and I met some of you this morning, we're in a series of being lost in translation. We're trying to help us not to be lost in translation, but we've been talking about how to study Scripture. We've been talking about the reliability and the sufficiency of Scripture. Last week, if you weren't here, you should watch it. We did a massive Bible study. And it was, it was so fun. We, we looked at observation, interpretation, covenant and kingdom, and application. We, we looked at a way of studying scripture. So I thought what we would do this morning, and I'm hoping that it will be Nerd Sunday Part 2, all right, <laughs> is that I want to, let's pretend that you all have actually listened to me and are studying scripture inductively, right? And you've got your journal and you're walking, open your Bible and you said, you know what, I'm going to study inductively 1 Timothy. So open your, your scriptures to, to 1 Timothy. And you're reading along and you're taking it section by section and thought by thought and you're doing observation, interpretation, application, all those things that we talked about, and then you come to this passage, which my elders were talking about when I was just after college, and you get to verse 11 of chapter 2, and you read this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, if you were reading along, would that passage of Scripture cause you to pause? I remember in college reading this passage of Scripture and going, wait, what? The, 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 the women in relation to men didn't fit my understanding of, of Paul at this point. But even more so, verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. But women will be saved through childbearing. I was like, what in the world? That doesn't make sense to me at all. I mean, I remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3 that said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God and be saved. But childbearing women to be saved... That makes no sense to me. I found a leader 
my leader, and I said, can you make sense of this scripture? And he said, I think there are some cultural things going on, but I don't get it. And so what I decided to do was give up the faith. No, I didn't decide to get up, uh, give up the faith. I just decided to hold on to the, those verses and say, well, Lord, I don't get it, but would you help me understand it someday? And that really was a journey in college uh, of really wrestling with those uh, scriptures and wrestling with this issue. What I'd like to do this morning is not convince you to my view of these scriptures, even though I think it's going to be compelling, but really if you wrestle with women in leadership, we do have a position paper on our website that many of you have read, but you can look at it, but that's not my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to give you a toolbox, it is to give you a toolbox. If you would pull out of your bulletin this little, this is uh, interpretive principles for the scriptures. These are interpretive principles that have really served me, that have helped me understand especially the difficult passages of scripture. Are we out of them? We'll, we'll go and make, are we going to make some copies? Okay, we're going to make some copies. Um, so uh, these, and I'm hoping that you'll put this in your Bible and that you'll have these interpretive principles and tools, and that they would be like a toolbox to you. And I thought it would be fun to choose one of the most difficult passages. Nerd Sunday Part 2, yes? Huh? Huh? And, and just look at these interpretive principles, okay? I'm not going to do them in order. I just did them in kind of the order that I experienced these particular texts and helped convict me. Are, are you with me? Is this making sense? So this is, think of this little piece of paper like a toolbox. And you've got these interpretive principles that you're pulling out and wrestling with. So the first principle that I think is important is P, the plainest meaning of the text. Whenever you can, you want to apply the plainest meaning. That, that's usually, you don't want to try and do gymnastics. Like if you're reading and Paul says, do not commit adultery. That's not an instance where you go, boy, I really wonder what he's getting at with that command. No, that's part of the Big Ten. That's reinforced from Genesis to, to Revelation. You don't have to wonder, what does adultery mean, really? No, generally, you're probably justifying behavior, right? So if you can, you want to take the plainest meaning of Scripture, okay? And, and again, it causes me pause when I read in particular that women will be saved through childbearing, I knew that that was not, the way I was understanding it was not consistent with Jesus, was not consistent with Paul, who says we're saved by grace through faith, right? Nothing about, right? So it was hard. That caused me to go, okay, there's something going on with that. But stick with the plainest meaning of the text whenever you can. A second principle, which is super important, is you allow Scripture, this is S, Scripture 
to interpret Scripture. And that's what my uh, uh, senior pastor was doing in that debate. He was saying, can we look at, and he was pointing us to two other scriptures. First one was Galatians 3, and I'm going to read that for you, for all of you. And this, again, is Paul, the same inspired author of 1 Timothy, also wrote, of course, the letter of Galatians. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. There's neither slave nor free in Christ, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What what Paul is saying there is that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, that your skin color does not matter. Rich or poor does not matter. We all have equal access. Male or female does not matter in Christ. We're all made in the image of God, broken by sin, and yet redeemed and restored in Jesus Christ. Amen? And what my senior pastor was arguing, which I still hold to, is that Paul has been misunderstood by the church. That Paul was preaching and teaching a radical equality in the church of Jesus Christ that was radical in terms of slaves and free, Jews and Gentile, male and female. That this text is a framing text of understanding Paul. So he's arguing. Okay, And then he directed us to um, Romans 16. All right. Now before you turn, I want you to turn there. But I remember having a discussion with a good friend who was seeking to understand scripture. And right after 1 Timothy, uh, or right after that, the, the verses we read, in chapter 3, look at verse 2. Now the overseer, which can be translated elder, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. Then jump down to verse 12. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must must manage his children and his household. And my friend was saying, Eric, how how can a, a woman be faithful to a wife? It's pretty clear. And I said, fair point. I'm going to hold on to that. Now when we move to Romans 16, what Paul is doing there is he's just greeting and commending and blessing um, people at the end of his letter. And Let me just read you the first section of Romans 16. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, or you could say a deaconess of the church. And what's interesting is that same word that he uses for Phoebe as a deacon is the same word that he uses, the Greek word, when he says a deacon should be a husband of one wife. How do you resolve that? Some denominations have resolved that by allowing women to be deacons but not elders. 
I think that's incomplete. I think you have to allow that understanding, him naming Phoebe, of how we understand both elders should be husbands of one wife and deacons should be husbands of one wife. You understand? Again, it's the principle of allowing Scripture to weigh in on the other Scriptures. What's also interesting, if you continue to read, he refers to Phoebe as a benefactor of many people, including me, Paul says. It's interesting, there's a level of authority in the word or the title benefactor. Look at verse 3 in Romans 16. Greet Priscilla, woman, and Aquila, married couple, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Do you know what co-worker means in the Greek? It means co-worker. <laughs> I, that, that's why you pay me for that really <laughs> insightful moments there. Priscilla and Aquila are interesting because if you turn to Acts 18, there's this young, gifted teacher, Apollos, and he's preaching and teaching the gospel, but it's incomplete. And Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is always named first, invite him, him in, Apollos, into their home, and they teach him. They explain the way more fully. They disciple him. How do you reconcile Paul naming and blessing co-workers who taught and explained the gospel to young teachers? You jump down to uh, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Again, there's that name. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was, says Paul. Now the plainest reading of that text implies that Junia was an apostle. Again, I'm trying to illustrate this principle of your allowing scripture to inform other scriptures. You're bringing that together. As I dug into these passages and my scale and post-college was 50-50, slowly the scale was kind of moving in a direction of affirming women in ordained ministry. Jumping back to 1 Timothy 2, if you Understand, we, we talked about this last week, again, the principle of kingdom and covenant. That kingdom is the grand story and the grand narrative of the scriptures, and covenant is how he relates to us. And so we can apply that to every scripture. I was asking the question, how does the story of the kingdom, the creation, the fall, the redemption and restoration apply to women in leadership. Most people, most scholars would agree that in the garden, in the creation story, there's a shared dominion or stewardship that Adam and Eve experienced. He said to both, he created them in his image and he said, be fruitful, right? And 
have dominion over the earth. The psalm that we read in communion related to that, right? There's this shared dominion. Creation represents God's heart and purposes for his world. The fall upsets creation. And so the question was, is, was male leadership part of creation or part of the fall? If it's part of creation, then it's God's design. If it's part of the fall, it's something to redeem. You with me? I was reading in Genesis 3, part of the pronouncement of consequences of their sin in the fall, and the Lord says to Eve, Genesis 3.16, this is part of the consequences of her rebellion, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It's part of the fall. That scale was tipping. One of my passions is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, and how did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament? How do we live into that covenant? And there's a, a key passage in Joel, Joel 2, that God talks about and tells the people that someday there's going to be a, a new covenant and things will change and adjust. Pentecost, Acts 2 happens. And for Peter, he's explaining what Pentecost is, the creation of the church. He goes back to Joel, and he says, this is what is happening right now. And he says this, quoting Joel 2, he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. What'd you notice? What'd you notice? Some of the people get the Holy Spirit and others don't. Everybody gets to play. What about if they're gifted with prophecy or teaching? They get to play? Now, I want us to pause for just a moment here. So, again, as I studied these things and the scale was going and still wrestling with... 1 Timothy 2, I think E, experiential bias, is important for us to humbly ask. And when I write experiential bias, what I mean by that is, what do you want the text to say? And that's probably going to influence how you see it. And I think for all of us, it's super important to ask that question. What do I really want the text to say? I want to be mindful of that experiential bias. And quite honestly, right, I've seen in other take the issue of, 
uh, LGBTQ and homosexuality, right? I, I've seen many dear friends and leaders change their theology on LGBTQ not because of scripture, not because of study of scripture, but because of their experience. Experience matters. Remember, we looked at that quadrilateral and our, the people before us, our relationships, that matters, that's important, but it's not our final rule of life and faith. Yes? And so I have to admit to myself, looking at this passage of Scripture, my first real mentors in the Lord were my mom and my sister. And my sister continues to be a mentor in that. I, I, don't, I want it to be true that women are gifted and called just like men. I want it to be. I, I just need to be mindful. My, my kids one day said to me just recently, they're like, Dad, we found someone that we agree are, they're wiser than you are. I was like, what do you mean? I don't claim. Oh, he's denying it now, but that's... It was an awkward conversation. I was like, what are you saying? They had just gotten back from Chicago, and they had spent time with my sister. And they said, we think Aunt Becky has got you. And I said, no way, she's a woman! No. I said, yeah, probably right. It's true, right? So, so that all goes to say, I'm trying to be mindful of my experiential bias because that can get us into trouble. We cannot see some things that we should see in Scripture. And we should ask the question. And I did this really uh, uh, standing in front of, uh, of the church when I was college and lead pastor. I wanted my pastor to be right. But I wanted to be mindful. I wanted to allow the texts to breathe and to teach and to form and to shape. That's a, a humility. RIT is another, the, the literary genre uh, Pastor Jedediah is going to talk about this a lot more, so we're only going to just spend a little bit of time next week. But there's different genres of scripture. There's history, there's wisdom literature, there's apocalyptic. First and second Timothy is a correspondence, is a letter, is an, an epistle between Paul and Timothy that matters, that should weigh in on how we understand what he's saying, that sometimes all the epistles, they weren't written in a vacuum. The letters were often responding to a situation, a difficulty, problematic, that we have to discern was Paul's words specifically meant to address a specific context, a specific church, because that's what letters often do. Or is he sharing a general principle that's happening? I take comfort in Peter. The apostle Peter was talking about Paul's letters 
In 2 Peter 3, 16, he says, his letters, Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand. He was in the time of Paul, and he's still wrestling with what, some of what Paul wrote, right? right? So there is some, he's encouraging study and wrestling. All right? Let me give you an example of this. Galatians 5, 2, Paul writes, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, then Christ has no value to you. If you've allowed yourselves to be circumcised, then Christ, Jesus, has no value to you. A little personal question for men. <laughs> How many of you have allowed yourself to be circumcised? A little gingerly, I know that, right? You might as well just leave. <laughs> right, just go, leave. Christ has no value for you. You're out, you're in hell. Boy, I hope there's some context around that verse. <laughs> it was interesting in, in Acts, if you turn to Acts 16, Paul circumcises Timothy. Why did he? He just sent Timothy to hell by his own words because he circumcised Timothy. Why did he circumcise Timothy? Well, he wanted Timothy's witness and testimony to be that much more effective to the Jews that he would be witnessing to. Acts is a, is a book of history. Right? He was applying that. Galatians is dealing with a particular false teaching surrounding circumcision and the necessity of circumcision. Paul's arguing, no, Jesus is all we need. See, you can get in trouble if you, if, if you don't take a literary context, the genre, into account. You with me? Yep. Making sense? All right, um, so uh, secondly, or finally, uh, context. That's the C of interpretation. I still remember my professors saying, context, context, context. There's a cultural context. There's a historical context. There's a situational context. Understand what's going on. And I think that's really key. Right? When, um, when Paul is sharing and uh, he placed Timothy in, uh, in Ephesus, let's go back to 2 Timothy here, and he tells Timothy, look at uh, chapter 1, you just back up just a little bit, in verse 3, I urge you when I went into Macedonia, Stay there, he says to Timothy, in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work. Timothy is there in Ephesus with this young church because there's numerous false teachings. Oftentimes we don't know exactly what those false teachings are, that we have to kind of put it together and read. If he's talking to the Corinthians, we have to go, okay, now he said this, so what could have been going on? So what could 
could have been going on. This is what leads people to study what was going on in Ephesus in the time that Paul wrote this to Timothy, that Timothy has this fledgling church. You know what was going on? Is that in the ancient world, there was a seventh wonder. And it was the temple of Artemis, the, the goddess. She was a Greek goddess. And all there were uh, not only priests, but priestesses that served the temple. It was the, the place in the Greek world where, spiritually speaking, women were granted uh, as much authority as men. Even, you could argue, more so because of the goddess. I think it's interesting we see in Acts that when Paul was establishing the church in Ephesus, he gets in trouble. They realize that he is not teaching the cult of Artemis. Am I saying that right, Artemis? Artemis, there it is. Artemis. Uh, he's, he's not teaching the, the, the cult of Artemis, right? He's teaching a different understanding that would upset those who make little statues and idols for the temple, they're going to go out of business. And this is not okay. And listen, I'll read a little bit longer of the uh, version. So um, Paul's establishing the church, and there's an argument that says, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So they create a riot and they start saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're rioting. And good old Paul, he says, I'll go talk to him. And the Christians in Ephesus, they're like, Paul, no, you don't get it. No, don't. He's like, no, but I want to explain. No. And they get him out, right? This is the context that Timothy is leading a church. This is, do you think that some myths and mythologies and genealogies could have been surrounding Artemis and the cult of worship? In fact, this helped me really understand. Two Greek words helped me really understand this passage, the one, verse 15, is in sozo. That can mean salvation, but it can also mean to be physically delivered. And so Artemis, she was many things, but she was also a goddess of fertility. And they believed that if you were right with Artemis, then she would protect your the birth, the child, and, and the woman. And now you've got these Christians that have turned away from Artemis to Christ, and they're pregnant. And they live in the city of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. You can imagine they would be concerned about their pregnancy and their life and Paul is saying, don't worry about it. You've got Jesus. You will be protected, not saved through childbirth. You will be protected. You see the power of that word when you understand that context? 
Did that make sense? All right. Should I repeat that? Because it's, it's an important point. Repeat it. So the word, look at verse 15. The word is sozo. The Greek word is sozo. And it can be translated saved, spiritually saved, but it can also be translated physically protected. In Artemis, she was a goddess of fertility. So let's say you had a high priestess, a priestess in serving the Artemis temple. She gives her life to Christ, and now she's pregnant. And she's like, I'm turning my back against the goddess of fertility, and now I'm hoping for a good pregnancy. I'm concerned. Does that make sense? And Paul says, Jesus has got you. This is my own paraphrase. He will protect you through childbearing. Just cling to him. Does that make better sense? I need some nods before. Yes? Okay. All right. Now, there's another Greek word that changed this entire passage for me. If you back up and you look at the word authority, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. That Greek word is authentain. Paul talks about authority oftentimes, over 25 times, and he uses a variety of words. I can't remember the number of words, like eight different words. This word that he uses in this circumstance he doesn't use in any other of his letters. In fact, this word is unique in this place to the New Testament. It's a different word that when you go outside of the New Testament in that time, when that word for authority, that's just translated authority in most of our translations, it's used for usurping or inappropriate or domineering authority. Why would Paul use this word for authority and no other? In fact, the King James Version uh, translates uh, like usurping authority. In my mind, this one word changes the text dramatically. I'll just read it. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume usurping authority, domineering authority over a man. Was that the one place in the Greek world with the temple of Artemis? that women who were high priestesses would do usurping authority? In fact, then when he points back to creation's story and the fall, he's not arguing potentially for a dominance, but the radical equality that's reflected in Galatians 3. That's reflected in Joel 2 and Acts 2, 
that's reflected in Romans 16. All right, I'm going to stop it there, right? Again, I know I get passionate about this subject, but I'm just trying to give you tools to see how you wrestle. The, the original language matters. The context matters. The genre matters. The, the situational context matters. Other scripture matters. All these things weigh in. Let me just finish up with our principles of interpretation here. Um, I wanted to say one, one last thing. Sorry. <laughs> Zeus and Leto, they had twins, and those twins were Artemis and Apollo. And there's some debate on who was born first, Artemis or Apollo, which order which they were given in that language. And then Paul could be, this is not a slam dunk, but he could be correcting the creation story. He's saying, no, 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 you, you have it wrong. Adam is the one who was born first, right? You're talking male or female. But again, he's our, I would say, or I am more and more convinced, we're going to talk about the scale, that he's arguing for a radical equality that the ground at the foot of the cross is equal. Okay, now I can move on. Revelation of Jesus and his spirit. I think we always go back to the life of Jesus. It's a big deal to me that Mary, when Martha, her sister, was saying, Jesus, would you have her help me in the kitchen? Jesus said, no, no. Mary's got it. She's sitting at the foot of Jesus like a disciple. That would be radically unheard of in a Jewish context for a woman to sit at the feet of a rabbi. I remember N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, saying, this is a big deal that Mary Magdalene, Jesus chose her to reveal himself to her first. And then he says to Mary, go instead to my brothers and tell them I am sending, ascending to my father and your father, that she, Mary Magdalene, was the first Christian apologist, an evangelist, witness to the apostles themselves. That makes a big deal to me. And I wanted us to end with this point, reverence. Will I allow scripture to be my final rule of life and faith? That's the question. Especially in times when I don't, it says things that I don't want it to say. Right? Again, going back to homosexuality, I, I wish scripture had a different conclusion, but I can't get around it. It's my final rule of life and faith. So how do I live into what I believe scripture teaches the best I can? 
comes to women in, a, in authority, there was a point where I had to say, I, I'm going to obey, Lord. Wherever that scale is, I, I'm going to obey. But I want to say one other thing, is the scale makes a difference. So I would say on this, uh, on the particular issue of the ordination of women as elders, pastors, I'm about 65, 70% on the scale. But I recognize I could be wrong. That when I get to heaven, he's going to correct my theology just like he's going to correct your theology. That I have good friends that can build a biblical argument. They could do it in a different way. Even using these same tools, they could build an argument in a different way. And I want to respect that. And so I want to be mindful that, for example, there might be folks a part of this church that would view women in leadership in a different way and that needs to be okay. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Right? Yes. Thank you, Mike. You see, I love the debate of the original church and we decided to ordain women as elders. And people walked away. And I was so sad when they walked away. Because I felt if you can even see a biblical argument being built, I think you should stay and hang in there. When people start giving up scripture as the final authority, that's the time to walk away. But not in times of discussion and honest wrestling with the text of what it says. And then elders the, the congregation voted, but then we didn't elect women elders for a number of years. And then we decided to go, the, the leadership did, to doing lots. So we'd get some people, we'd vet a group of people, and then lots. You know who the first women elder of my home church was? My mom. My mom. It's cool. It was neat. Friends, don't let go of Scripture. Yes, as the Apostle Peter says, there's some things that are hard to understand. It's true, but that shouldn't then bring down the, the power and authority that God wants the scriptures to play in our lives. He wants the scriptures to be that final rule of life and faith to establish us more. And when things come that we can say, hey, let's, let's before the Lord, and in community, without contention or division, really wrestle with what the scripture says and hold on to its authority. Let's pray. So Lord, we come before you giving thanks for your revelation, 
your revealed word. How incredible, Lord, that you inspired men and possibly women. Lord, across the ages to write history, to write wisdom, led by your spirit, the gospels and the narratives and the epistles and the letters and revelation. Lord, we praise you, Lord God. We praise you that you did not leave us wandering in the dark trying to figure out who you are and your truth and how you've called us and designed us to live, Lord Jesus. Lord, would you form and shape us into people of your book? Would you teach us to walk in humility, in thoughtfulness, in reverence, to your revealed word. Amen.